I did actually give him a choice of what to, to read tonight, and he went for 2 Corinthians 5, and chose, I think, just the right verses as well. We're not going to look at that in detail much tonight, but it's a good place to start when we're talking about the subject, conversion, does it happen? Because what Pop doing in 2 Corinthians is he's trying to make friends with the Corinthians again. They've had a big, big falling out. And people in Corinth have been challenging whether or not Paul really is a proper servant of God. They've met much more flashy preachers and people who uh, tell more jokes, have better stories, seem to have a different spin in the Bible than Paul does. And Paul's not that good to look at anyway. So they're starting to say, well, is he really that great? Is he all he's cracked to be? And it got to the point where they were doing something wrong and Paul had to write them a letter that he was very worried about. You read about that in chapter 7. And uh, he was worried about it because he was so hard on them. He had to say, look, this is wrong. You've got to put it right. You must do this now. And to his great joy, they did. <laughs> they listened to him. So now they're friends again, kind of. But he's try just trying to rebuild it a little bit. So what he's doing in chapter 5 is saying why he's really an apostle. And what his job is, what his motivation is. He's not about raising money for the Greater Paul Mission to Asia or anything like that. He's not about uh, promoting his own name. He's not about getting preaching opportunities. What he is about is telling everybody that he can, Jew and Gentile alike, about the tremendous change that comes in people's lives when they become Christians. And so he says, we don't look at anybody just as purely human beings anymore, just the bloke round the corner. Instead, when we look at people, we see them through Jesus' eyes. And we see them in the light of eternity. And we see that they all need something desperately that we have got. And so we don't look at people in the same way anymore because we know that if anybody's in Christ, he's a brand new person inside. That's the way the old living Bible puts it. An old life has passed away. A new life has come. And that's not done by human beings. It's done by God. Now, that's a big claim to make. And it was an unusual one in the ancient world when Paul says, we persuade men in the fear of God. Uh, persuading people to adopt a certain religion, that wasn't something you did. Most people thought that whatever religion you were born into, that was where you ought to stay. And the whole idea that you could convert somebody from one thing to another, that was a little bit weird. The Jews certainly did make proselytes. They allowed Gentiles to come into synagogues and sit there and listen. And there are many Gentiles, as we saw before going through the book of Romans, who were really interested in the Jewish faith because it seemed so much clearer and purer than anything they'd heard before. And they could become proselytes if they wanted, if they were circumcised and all sorts of other things, obeyed food laws that Gentiles didn't much appreciate. What, this for breakfast again? Oh, dear. You know, and, and they could do that, but not many did. So they stayed on the fringes. And if you were a Jew and you started helping a friend of yours to proselytize, to, to, to become a Jew out of a pagan background, people would say, well, it's a praiseworthy thing to do, but you know, most people aren't that keen. You don't have to do that, you know. For Paul, it's completely different. Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. We've got to do it. We've got to share this thing. We can't keep it to ourselves. So the big question is, was he right? Do people change in that kind of a way? Does conversion really happen? Because this is something we're going to come up against uh, in, when we talk to people, isn't it? I remember when there was a lot of respect for Christianity. When I was, I was a, a, in my teens and, and when I was a student, often sometimes when I was on the bus going back down to university or something like that, I'd be sitting next to somebody and they'd say, so, so tell me about yourself. Uh, what, what do you do? And i well, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm a student. But uh, I preach in churches in my spare time. Oh, oh uh, that must be, uh, yes, 
Very rewarding. A very good thing to do. Yes. Okay. And you could see the discomfort. It was very funny, actually. Uh, and you could get into a conversation from there very easily indeed. Not the same nowadays. There's a lot of hostility to Christianity. And people sort of look at hypocrites and think, are they for real? Are they hypocrites? We've seen the scandals of abuse in many of the big churches worldwide. We've heard the great stories of Christian heroes who've fallen. And we've seen over the last few years in the multi-choice society we've got, more people dropping away from Christian faith than we've seen certainly at any point in my lifetime and probably any time within the 19th and 20th centuries. We've all got the message that life can be what we make it. You can design things the way you want. On your phone, you can have what apps you want and you can scrap the ones you don't want. You can take your computer screen and you can model it to look just the way, customise the way you want it, with your picture all over it, whatever you want. You can, you can make choices all the time. You don't have to watch just BBC or ITV, which were the only two options when I was growing up 350 years ago. You know? You've now got all these TV channels. You've got Netflix, you've got ITVX, you've got BBC iPlayer, you, Amazon Prime Video. You know? And when you think, what shall I watch tonight? You've almost got too many choices, haven't you? You can get all sorts of foods you never used to get a few years ago. And with all of this choice going on in society, no wonder that people are starting to think, well, I can try this, and if I don't like it, I can back out. So, for example, that's what's happened to this guy, Bart Ehrman, one of the leading New Testament textual critics in the world, and somebody who used to be a Christian. He was somebody who um, uh, grew up in a, a churchy background, became a Christian as a teenager, went off to Moody Bible College, got his degree there, and then went on to Wheaton, another evangelical stronghold, did a couple of years, got a master's, then went to Princeton. And somewhere in the process of that, his faith started to be shaken because he started thinking there are so many differences in the New Testament manuscripts. They seem to have been changed so much now I look at them. How can we be sure that what we're reading here is actually reliable. Well, I think there are answers to that. Ehrman has been criticised again and again by, by, by Christian scholars for the way that he fudges the evidence and changes things. This is the story of how he became a Christian anyway. The story I tell starts with me as a church-going Episcopalian as a child, committed to the church, saying the creed, confessing my sins, believing in God and Christ, serving as an altar boy. And then in high school, I had a religious transformation. I started attending a Campus Life Youth for Christ meeting that ended a, involved a social event every week and ended with a spiritual lesson of some sort, always geared towards having kids turn to Christ as their Lord and Saviour and ask Jesus into their heart. I already had a religious streak, but this seemed to me to be Christianity on steroids, and I was drawn to it. In part, that was because the event seemed very wholesome. There were lots of interesting and popular kids there, and I had the combination of social fun and spiritual truth. But it put me in a rather funny situation. I was a church-going, deeply believing Episcopalian, but I was being told that I had to, quote-unquote, become a Christian. And he just accepted it because he was young. And he went through a little prayer and so on. He became a car-carrying evangelical, and he went off to college on that basis. And somewhere along the way, his faith dropped out. Now, what are you to make of him? Did he have a genuine conversion experience, or did he not? I don't know. But he's just... Uh, typical of the kind of person you find a lot uh, around the world today who are burnt out Christians. People who've held on to something for a while and then found it's just not real to me anymore. And so he's writing books like Misquoting Jesus, How Jesus Became God, Exaltation of a Jewish Preacher from Galilee, Jesus Before the Gospels, How the Earliest Christians Remembered, Changed and Invented Their Stories of the Saviour. Five of his books have been New York Times bestsellers because the doubt he's spreading... <laughs> And the uncertainty 
that, that he sells is very, very attractive to a lot of people. He described himself nowadays as an agnostic atheist. If there is a God there, he's not sure about him. And as in the end, it was the suffering in the world that knocked him off his perch and cannot believe this stuff any longer. And we're seeing that kind of story more and more in our own day. So does evangelism, sharing the message in the way that Paul used to, does that actually work? It's got a lot of history. And over the last 200 years, we've seen all sorts of people who've been converted one way or another. Back in the 18th century, you've got people like John Wesley, George Whitfield, great evangelists like them. And throughout the 19th century, more and more people who would hold big meetings and invite people to become Christians, knock on doors all over the place, hold open-air meetings, and people would become Christians. It's not just then as well. Look at Billy Graham in the 20th century. This is one of his uh, crusades in Canada. And you can see the number of people in the middle who've come forward at the end of his talk. They want to become Christians. They want to be converted. Doesn't happen just in North America either. In 1954, Billy Graham came to Hattingate. And uh, his meetings were held at a station on the edge of the London city centre. It took a bit of, of uh, organisation to get yourself there. But it was packed out, night after night after night. And there's a, a picture that never fails to move me of Trafalgar Square absolutely flooded with people listening to one man explaining what the gospel is all about. And people became Christians big time back then. And in Billy Graham's subsequent visits as well. And I still meet older people older than me, who said, you know, it was in 1954 that I found Christ. Oh, yeah, Billy Graham. And again and again, you see the good that one man did through just spreading the message. And people who have been changed by what they experienced from him have stayed that way, stayed changed through decades and decades and decades afterwards. So is it real or is it not? And then you get the church leaders who haven't made it. This is Ted Haggard. When I found out what had happened to him, it broke my heart because he was my great hope for the future of religion in America. He was the uh, uh, president of the National Association of Evangelicals, which has 30 million members across America. He was in and out of the White House uh, in Barack Obama's day. Uh, tremendously respected, and George Bush as well, tremendously respected by people. He was a great organiser and a thinker. He was a keen... Uh, a Christian leader. He uh, taught wonderful sermons at the church that he himself had started in his own front room uh, in Colorado. Uh, he had a tremendous past as a teenage Christian. He'd smuggled Bibles into Russia at the risk of being in prison for years and years. And uh, his commitment to Christ seemed in no doubt whatsoever. And you probably remember what happened to him. He was exposed by a, a, a homosexual prostitute as one of his clients. And he said, I had to speak up because I couldn't stand this man's hypocrisy anymore. Not only have I been sleeping with him, I've been supplying him with drugs. And this story just started to come out. Uh, uh, Haggard just denied it to start with, lied and lied and lied. And then when it was all over, uh, he agreed, agreed to go into counselling so that he could be restored. And a group of uh, evangelical leaders from across America was put together to help him and find a way back. He lasted about three months and he started not doing this anymore. He went off and founded another church. That church has now collapsed with more allegations of impropriety against Haggard. He started another church in his front room once again in the same style as before. And it seems he just goes from one thing to another. Was he ever a Christian? Or was he always a compromiser? I don't know. Looking from the outside, it's hard to tell, isn't it? Certainly, that another man who claimed that he had an affinity with Ted Haggard um, talks about how once they were, they were sitting in his room and Haggard said to him, You know what, Grant? You can become a man of God and you can have a little bit of fun on the side. 
And the least, you can, the, the least you can say about him is his heart was not in the right place. He was trying to have his cake and eat it. So just how committed was he? Is he born again? He certainly talks a language. Or does his record of failure mean that he's got no contact with Jesus? Well, conversion is a funny old thing because we're looking from the outside and we can't always tell what's going on. Some people get the wrong idea about it. And often when people say, I don't believe in conversion, I don't believe people change, I believe you Christians are just a bunch of hypocrites because everybody's basically the same. You get good people, you get bad people, but you're just the same as everybody else. Often they've got the wrong idea about what conversion is supposed to be. Conversion isn't, first of all, just a change of mind or opinions. You can see the sense in what Christians are saying. You can believe the Bible. You can believe in Jesus Christ and yet never accept it for yourself. And when somebody becomes a Christian, people seem to think that there must have been a deep intellectual change in them. Not always, not necessarily. It's not a case of knowing something new for many people. It's just a case of acting on it and putting it into practice. Nor is it just an emotional experience. Sometimes people think it's got to be in a big meeting with the organ playing with maximum vibrato and the choir singing softly in the background and the evangelist repeating the word, come, 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 as they come to the front. Almost hypnotised. And it doesn't need to be that way. Mind you, if you watch some of those supposedly Christian channels on the, the upper reaches of your, your, your dial on, on TV, um, you might get that impression very, very easily. But that's not what conversion is about. And sometimes the most powerful conversions have been the least uh, promising situations. For example, Jonathan Edwards, back in the 18th century, started the, what's known as the, the, the Great Awakening in, in America uh, through preaching a sermon in his church one night called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And people get, oh yes, <laughs> we know what happened there. He just got there and he pounded the pulpit and he pointed finger at people and he terrified them with pictures of flames and hell and horrible stories about people being lost. Oh, we know what happened. He just scared them into the kingdom of heaven. And that's not the way it was. Because if you read all of the accounts of um, uh, that sermon from Jonathan Edwards, first of all, he read it. <laughs> he had a manuscript in front of him and his eyes say it wasn't too good. So he kept on shuffling over and finding the right words. Second, he had to do it by candlelight because he didn't have electric lights in those days. Uh, third, it was in a quiet and, uh, uh, and unemotional tone that he delivered. And the power that gripped the audience had nothing to do with him at all. But sometimes people think, this is what Christians do. They manufacture an emotional crisis in people. And uh, then that produces a sudden overwhelming crisis. And in that crisis, they feel lost. And then they find Jesus. Not necessarily that way. Conversion isn't also necessarily a decision to do good. It's not that you decided to pull up your socks and be a nice guy instead of a bad guy. It's not that you resolve to do better tomorrow. Because, as we were saying this morning, you can't get into the kingdom of heaven unless you recognise your own powerlessness. Unless somebody comes in from the outside and helps you, you can't do it on your own. You never would. And finally, conversion isn't complete and total assurance. Now, it's for some people. I know that there are some people who, uh, the moment they become Christians, just feel, right, I've settled it, that's great. I know God, I have a relationship with Jesus, and they don't seem to have any more problems in believing for the rest of their life. But I also know a very clever people, people who've got really analytical minds, who think through situations and worry about them, who may become Christians, but then all sorts of doubts come to their mind. Doubting is not necessarily wrong. Doubting is the sort of thing you do when you've bought a car, paid a lot of money for it, 
and you spent a long time weighing up which one you should buy. You've finally gone for it, paid the money over. There's your car on the driveway outside. And suddenly, for the next two weeks, you are noticing all the good points of the models that you didn't actually buy. That's what happens, isn't it? Once you've made a big decision, do you think, was I right? I not. And it's good sometimes that people doubt their faith because what you're doing is testing it out against reality. Now, doubt is a good thing to pass through. It's not a great place to stay. And it's possible to let those doubts overwhelm you in such a way that you become crippled by them. But that's not necessarily a bad thing on its own. And it's not necessarily the case that to be a Christian, you have to be brimming full of assurance all the time. Okay, I was talking about blessed assurance last week. And uh, uh, yeah, sometimes people do feel a tremendous assurance all the time. Other Christians don't. And uh, God accepts both of them. So that's what conversion isn't necessarily. It can include elements of those things, but that's not what sums it up. So what is conversion biblically? Well, I think there are six things that, uh, that would have to be there if it's a genuine biblical conversion. First of all, it starts with repentance. This is one of the great New Testament words, the word metanoia. And it literally means turning round and going in the opposite direction to the one they're going in. Turning right round. Living to a different standard. Following a different leader. And that's got to be part of the package. And the Christians who tend to not make it, to give up, uh, when times get hard, tend to be the people who just take it as an add-on to their lives. Uh, and real conversion starts with seeing who you are and how much you need Jesus. It starts with realizing that you're a sinner and you can do nothing to help yourself. Samuel Rutherford, the, the great Scottish preacher whom I've mentioned at least once in this church, um, was, was, was spent years in prison as a result of his faith. And uh, he once wrote, you know, that when, when you're a prisoner and you can see the edge of the executioner's axe, and you're thinking, that is going to be on my head in a minute. You know, it's going to separate my head from my body. Then you feel very, very keen. The mercy of the king who said, no, don't kill him. Let him live. And he was saying, many people have never really taken seriously the awful mess they're in before God. The fact that they deserve nothing from God except extinction. They're a failed experiment. The whole of the human race is steeped in, in sin and iniquity. Nobody lives up to the standard that God has designed us to live up to. And so you're in a terrible mess unless somebody takes the punishment for you that you cannot take for yourself. And that's exactly what Jesus has done. So the whole thing starts with repentance and the conviction of sin. Second, there's despair of yourself. The second uh, real thing of uh, uh, a, a genuine conversion is that it's not an on to your life. It's not something you take on as another package you're going to make part of your lifestyle. Instead, it's, it's coming to the end of yourself and saying, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to your cross I cling. There is nothing I can do to help myself. Well, I've said a bit about that already, so let's move on. The thing is, submission to Jesus. Making Jesus Lord. If you really mean to be a Christian, then Jesus has to be the boss. He's got to be in charge. Otherwise, it's not a genuine conversion. Fourth thing, growing holiness. There should be a change in your lifestyle as a result of becoming a Christian. Now, this is a tricky one, isn't it? Because often we don't see it in ourselves. Other people see it first. I remember doing a series of articles once for a Christian magazine uh, who asked me to go around and interview people who'd become Christians and ask them the same kind of questions about their testimony story. And I always asked the same question at one point, which was, how, when did you know that you, cha you were changing as a Christian? And it always come up with the same answer. Well, it wasn't so much me, it was more my friends noticed. Oh, really? 
Yeah, and they said, Jim, you've changed. Oh, don't get me wrong, it's a good change, we like it, but you've changed. And often other people will see first what happened to us. We think nothing's happening, nothing's moving, and it is. But we don't necessarily see it. Uh, what's more, um, we tend to focus on the things that we get most bugged by and think need sorting out. Think, why doesn't God sort out this temptation in my life? And he's working in other areas very successfully without us noticing that. There's a great story I read in the book about teenage Christianity, about a girl who became a Christian uh, out of a completely pagan background, and uh, she had a terrible problem with drink before she became a Christian. She was only 16, 17, but she was going down to the pub every night and just getting absolutely hammered. And Jesus delivered her from that. And uh, she just stopped the drinking. She became a different kind of person almost overnight. It was a remarkable thing to see. And about six weeks into her new Christian life, the vicar of her church decided to interview her about what Jesus had done for her. And so he got her to tell the story how she'd become a Christian and what it meant to her. And he said, so how has God changed you in the last six weeks? He said, uh, change, change. Oh, can't think really. I'm probably a bit nicer to people. <laughs> and this whole drink problem had just slipped away and she hadn't even realized that was what God was dealing with. So growing holiness, but not necessarily always, always easy to spot. Then there's fruitfulness. We have an effect uh, in, in the world around that we didn't have before. We produce fruit that we never did. What does that mean? Well, some people think of fruit as people coming to Christ. And that certainly is the case. We tell other people about it and they can become Christians as well. But there's also the fruit of spirit in Galatians 5. And I think fruit is whatever is coming out of your life that is good, that wouldn't be there unless you were a Christian. And so that's part of the whole deal as well. And the final thing I would mention is brotherly love. Now, I hesitated before putting that down because the word in Greek that we normally translate brotherly love is Philadelphia. And the Adelphi bit means girls as well as boys. <laughs> so it's not just brotherly love, it's sisterly love. It includes all of the people of God. You develop a new feeling of belonging to a family of being one with other Christians. They support you, you support them through all the problems of life. And it doesn't matter how different they are in culture or age or, or whatever. You belong together in a way that you didn't five minutes before. And uh, that, it seems to me, are the marks, the hallmarks of a real conversion. And there's too much fake conversion going on in the world at the moment. So, is that how you tell who's a real Christian and who isn't? Well, yes, but it's complicated. There are some reasons why you might not see clearly what's going on in somebody else's life. For one thing, man looks on the outside, says the Bible, God looks on the heart. You cannot see what's going on in the depths of somebody else's heart. Um, uh, you can only see on the outside. God knows, but you don't. And when you become a Christian, it's a profound change at such a deep level that other people won't necessarily understand the workings of it. Again, Rutherford, I, I wrote down this quote from him because uh, he just goes through the, the Bible talking about people who became Christians and the way that God worked with them. Listen, the particular exact knowledge of the Lord's honour of drawing of sinners may be unknown to many that are drawn. There may be sundry locks and various turnings and throwings of the same key and but one key. One, some Christ draws by the heart, like Lydia and Matthew. Love sweetly and softly bloweth up the door, and the king is within doors on the floor of the house before they be aware. Others, Christ trails and drags by violence, rather by the hair of the head than by the heart, as the jailer in Acts 16 and Saul in Acts 9, who are plunged over ears in hell and pulled above water by the hair of their head. Sure, thousands wear a crown of glory before the throne who were never at making themselves a by killing themselves as the jailer was. 
A third sort know they are drawn, but how or when, or the mathematical point of time, they know not. Some are full of the Holy Ghost from the womb, as John Baptist. G. Campbell Morgan, the great preacher, used to say he could never remember a time when he hadn't been confident of the love of God and the fact that he belonged to him. He grew up in a loving Christian family. He said, I was three when I first realized that Jesus loved me and I loved him. We're not all like that. And there probably was a point where he, he passed from death to life. There must have been. But he had no consciousness of it because it had it so early in his life. And so uh, Rutherford says, um, a, you must not cast off all, nor must saints they say they are none of Christ's because they cannot tell you histories and wonders of themselves and of their own conversion. Some are drawn by miracles, some without miracles. The word of God is the roadway. <laughs> so other people don't necessarily see what's going on in your life, and you don't necessarily understand it either. C.S. Lewis, talking about the day that he became a Christian, said, I know very well when, but hardly how, the final step was taken. I was driven to Whipsnade, to the zoo, one Sunday morning. When we set out, I did not believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And when we reached the zoo, we did. Yet I had not exactly spent the journey in thought. <laughs> so how does it happen? It's, uh, I think our last hymn is, is, is going to tell us a bit about that. I know not how the Spirit moves, convincing men of sin, revealing Jesus through the Word, creating faith in him. But I know whom I have believed. And you're there, you're there, but you might not realise how you got there. And you might not see that going on in other people. Second, a new Christian is a baby. So when you become a Christian, you're a bit like a, 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 some of the babies that we've seen around Great Parks in the last few months. They'll look around and think, what is this? What is going on here? But they won't remember much of it. I don't know when your earliest memory is. Mine comes from when I was four. You go back to three or possibly even two years and some months. But for the first couple of years or so of your existence, you probably remember nothing about what you went through because it's all so new. <laughs> and it takes a while before it all settles into your mind, doesn't it? And you realise, yep, this is milk and it tastes good and it builds me up. And if I want some, I just ball my head off till mummy comes and does it for me. You, know, you start working out what the rules are and learning how the world fits together. And a new Christian is a baby in a whole new world. And it can take some time before you realise where you are. Third complicating factor is that when somebody becomes a Christian, human factors are involved as well. Um, a, it's often said, for instance, when you're talking about spiritual gifts, that God tends to give you spiritual gifts which are along the lines of the natural abilities you've always had. I mean, many good evangelists are former used car salesmen. <laughs> because they're good at talking people into things and the gift that God uses in them. Moody was a shoe salesman and so on and so forth. Um, and sometimes, you know, people who are good at administration are good at that in business as well as in the church. And that doesn't mean that God hasn't given them a gift. It's just that he's sanctified what they already have. In the same way, God may use your circumstances and the way you've been brought up and all kinds of things and the friends you make at school or university to push you in the direction of Jesus. And so human factors can be involved as well. Um, family background can be part of this as well. Uh, Richard Dawkins claims that most people stay in the religion they're born in. That's not actually true statistically around the world. But uh, you find with many Christians, they would say, I come from a Christian family. I remember going to a, a Bible school in Spain where they have only 32 students a couple of years ago. And uh, the leader said... Uh, one evening, oh, let's all tell our stories. Let's just find out how you became a Christian. And, well, I was born in a Christian family. Yeah, I was born in a Christian family too. I was born in a Christian family. We found that all 32 of them actually came from Christian families. 
Now, that says something sociologically about changes that are going on in our society, but it also points to the fact that sometimes God can plant in families where we are going to grow up aware of the gospel in a way that would never have happened otherwise. I remember thinking when I was in my teens, would I ever have become a Christian if I hadn't been brought, born into this family? And I think probably not. It would depend on the family I did have. But I can't see my, me coming from a completely non-Christian background into where I am now. And so I believe God put me in the right place to hear the truth and respond to it. So family can have something to do with it. Liminality has an effect as well. What on earth is liminality? Well, liminality is when you're moving from one state to another, when you're in transit. Uh, arch- um, a architects, yes, talk about liminal spaces, and they're the spaces that we pass through rather than staying there. Bus stations, hallways, shopping malls, places like that. You know, you don't stay there. If you get out your sleeping bag, then the security guard will be along in five minutes. You know, you don't stay, you're just passing through. And liminality is when you're going from one stage to another. That is why an awful lot of people around the world become Christians when they're in their teens. Because in Western society, that's one of the times of biggest change for us. We're moving away from a world that's dominated by our mind and dad. We're moving into a world where we're making decisions for ourselves. And we're looking at, what do I think? What do I really believe? And it's at that point we can be most open to a message that makes sense. Liminality means, too, that people who are in an unsettled environment will respond quicker. Not just to Christianity, but any message. Why is it that Jehovah's Witnesses do so well on new housing estates? where people tend to know, not know the neighbours very well or anybody else, and people move in and out at great speed, and they don't do very well in settled communities. You don't find the Jehovah's Witnesses converting lots of people in, say, remote Devon villages, in, you know, mid-Devon or something like that. It doesn't happen. Why? Because people there are in a network of relationships which seems pretty firm, pretty solid. Most of my friends in France who are working to preach the gospel in France easily find Algerians and uh, Indians and all sorts of people who've washed up in France turning to the gospel and listening with interest. But the ethnic French, oh, just not what I believe, no, go away. You know, they are very, very difficult to get through to. So liminality's got something. All these things have, have a, 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 something to go in it. We're all, as well, a work in progress. You can look at somebody else and say, no, he cannot be a Christian. She cannot be a Christian and behave like that. But, you know, God works with different people in different ways at his own speed. And sometimes when we look at other people and say, that's not what I see as Christianity, we can be wrong. We have to give people the benefit of the doubt and begin to realise that if God is at work in their lives, it won't necessarily be in the way that we want him to work. When my father was working in prisons in Scotland, um, he used to uh, send prisoners who'd become Christians in jail out to churches near their home where he thought they would be looked after. At first, he, he only sent them to Brethren Assemblies because that was who was financing and supporting what he was doing. Uh, and in the end, he found that uh, there were other denominations that would be a lot more welcoming. Because he'd phone up some of his brethren friends and say, so how's that lad doing that I sent to you three, four weeks ago? Oh, Alec, he was never a Christian. You know, he still smokes. I heard him swear the other day. No, no, he's not a Christian. And we can easily write people off if we're not careful. God deals with people in his own time, in his own way. And we all have things that we need to conquer. Jesus needs to work on in all of us. Another limiting factor, a complicating factor, is that unbelievers can do great things. They can do fantastic stuff. Uh, Look at, for instance, the record of people like Gandhi. 
Look at the charities that have been uh, formed over the last few years. Not many Christian-based, as they used to be in the 19th century, but are doing fantastic work around the world. Shelter boxes, all kinds of things like that. And we shouldn't be surprised at that as Christians, because it's not that Christians are good and everybody else is bad. <laughs> We're all a mixture. And God has put in the human heart a desire for what's good and for what's right and for what's loving. It gets distorted by sin. And when we're fallen, we cannot make ourselves what we want to be. But that doesn't mean that there still can't be a lot of natural goodness hardwired in by our Creator into people who don't accept Jesus. And that's why sometimes people can say, well, you say Christians are all right, but look at those people over there. They don't believe in anything. And look at what they're doing for the community. Look what they're doing out there. And yeah, it's true. Non-Christians can be good people. <laughs> and we need to, to, to bear that in mind as well. We'll have in, inbuilt weaknesses as well. There are some things that it's harder for us to conquer than it might be for other people. Lord Shaftesbury in the 19th century was one of the greatest reformers that Britain has ever seen. When he died, the streets of London were absolutely black with people who turned out for the funeral. And they weren't all lords and ladies and MPs as he was. They were street sweeps. They were prostitutes. They were children who'd been saved and crawling up chimneys through the work that he'd done. He was a fantastic man and a wonderful Christian. But you know what? Uh, his diary was left after his death. And when people read it, they could not believe just how depressed a, a, a man he was. How little happiness he had. How suspicious he was of other people. How judgmental he was of himself. And they began to realize he was a deeply unhappy man. It came from his childhood. And he never quite got over it for all the good he did. D.L. Moody, the great evangelist, he could be a pain in the neck. He really could. He was a very forceful guy. That's why he was a very powerful evangelist. But, and God used that powerfully in his service. But uh, there was a time when he was holding meetings in the agricultural hall in Islington and people were being converted all the time. And the, 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 the committee you were running were saying, this is brilliant, but we need to move you into the centre of the city. We've got a hall in the West End. Come and do your meetings there and we'll see even more people converted. And Moody just said, no, nah, not doing that. I'm staying here. like it here. And uh, there's a, a great a, a account of how he just sat there on, in his chair while they all went there and said, but why, but why, Mr. Reason? We're not moving, and that's that. And he could like that. Really arrogant. Really, really strong-minded. And, you know, that was just something in him he had to get over. And God took years to chip away at that in him. With you and me, it might not have taken so long. So we all have hang-ups. We all have problem areas. And... Not everybody knows exactly where those areas are. So when people look at him and say, he can't be a Christian because he's a hypocrite, well, not necessarily. And there are lots of other things as well. But one last one. Worldwide trends are hard to measure. Are people still becoming Christians these days? Yes, they are in large numbers. But nobody's going around with a notebook or a calculator and putting it all down. And that most of the data we've got is pretty impressionistic. And so you'll find many Muslim websites on the internet that say, Muslims are outstripping Christians. We are making far more converts than the Christians are. And you'll find Christian triumphalist websites saying, no, Christianity is smashing Islam into the dust. Thousands of people are becoming Christians in Pakistan. It's just you don't see it here. Well, what is the actual truth? We'll have a look at that in a moment. All I want to say here is worldwide trends are hard to measure. When you look at all of these things together, you begin to realize that looking at another person and judging what is going on spiritually in them is a very difficult thing to do. You have to ask this question, don't you? Why are some Christians terrible adverts for their faith? <laughs> Why is it that some Christians put other people off? And when you're talking to your non-Christian friends, you say, well, look at so-and-so. I don't like that person at all. And he's a Christian. 
Um, I've lost count of the number of times that people said to me, oh, I don't mind if I'm going to hell. <laughs> I'd rather be in hell with the fun of floating in heaven with the Christians because some of the Christians are a bit boring to people. I always come out with this as if they just thought of it and it's a very original thing to say. But, uh, you know, if I had a pound for every time, whoo. And uh, sometimes people think, you know, the fun people are not Christians. The hypocrites, the terrible people, they're the ones that go to church. And you've got to admit that some Christians are not very good adverts. Why is that? Well, here are some reasons. First of all, they might not be listening to the Holy Spirit. The New Testament talks about grieving the Holy Spirit, quenching the Holy Spirit, even lying to the Holy Spirit. And if we're living in denial of what God is trying to say to us, we're not going to look very good in the eyes of other people. They're going to see us very quickly. So, so it's something that the New Testament says, this is going to happen. You're going to have people who are not very good adverts. That's one reason. Second, some start well and then fall away. And again, this is something that Jesus predicted, wasn't it? Do you remember the parable of the sower? Jesus talked about uh, uh, seeds springing up and, and doing well to start with, and then it just dies away because it's got no nourishment, no nurture. Unless you nurture your Christian life, unless you build that relationship with Jesus, then you will reach the point where it all dies away. And you think, was it real or wasn't it? And as Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 1, you become blind and short-sighted and have forgotten that you are purged from your old sins. The experience of forgiveness goes. The experience of God's presence in your life goes. The sense of having him there day by day. The sense of seeing life through his eyes and understanding what he wants you to do. All of that disappears as if it's just a mirage. And you end up like... I guess Bart Ehrman saying, well, you know, it was just an adolescent phase of philosophy. There is actually no reality to it whatsoever. Third, some people are hypocrites on the make. They're trying to do well. Uh, and Christianity is a great atmosphere in which to be a con man because they're not very judgmental. Actually, way back in the early days of the church, there was a Roman satirist called Lucian, and he wrote about a, a fellow that he called Peregrinus whom he said, said was a Christian. And he'd become a Christian because he found that the Christians fed him and looked after him. And when he started telling stories about his conversion, uh, more and more improbable every time he told them, the Christians said, wow, oh, that is amazing. And Lucian was just saying how gullible these Christians are, you know, because they don't judge people. They just take them on board. Anything they say to them, they'll accept it. And they'll give money to these people. It's daft. And uh, that's something certainly that does happen. And uh, Jesus had a good point when he said we need to be as, as, as gentle as doves but as wise as serpents. We need to be able to tell when we're being conned. We're not always good at that. And so the Christian church can be a very attractive people, uh, place for people who want to look like something they're not. That's one reason there have been so many abuse scandals in churches. Because we've given people the, 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 the balance of the, the benefit of the doubt when we should really have checked out what they were saying an awful lot more quickly. And we trust people too much if we're not careful. Also, some Christians are terrible adverts for the faith because they've espoused Christianity as part of a package of views. It goes along with, I don't know, reactionary politics or a kind of nationalism or whatever it happens to be. Even Hitler recognised the power that Christianity has to mould people's minds. And that's why in the early days of the, 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 his power in the 1930s, uh, he tried to invent a kind of German Christianity that would focus everything uh, on, on God, but would do it in a religious way. I, I read just recently uh, the Nazi version of Silent Night, the, Chris, the, the Christmas carol, and it's all reflecting glory on Hitler rather than Jesus. It's an absolutely crazy, sick piece of work. And yet he tried. 
because he realized it, it could just win a lot of support. Religion can affect people's minds. And so some people take on Christianity Plus. There's a lot of other things that don't really belong with it. And we need to realize that can happen too. Some just want to be respectable. And you see that Christianity is an indicator of social respectability. You're a good person if you're a Christian. That's less and less the case in, in our society today. But uh, there are still some people who see uh, being a Christian as a mark of respectability. And all these things are, 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 are part of it. Here's the last one. The rice Christians. What do I mean by that? Well, this is a phrase that was used about some of the early converts in China when the first missionaries went to China. They set up little communes. And Chinese people who had nothing came and attached themselves to the community. And they talked about Jesus and they claimed to worship Jesus and follow Jesus. But it was all just so they could get the rice. It was so that they could be fed, so that they could be secure. And it's always possible that people will, will, will come into Christian circles for the benefits that it provides them for. Now, don't get me wrong, sometimes people become Christians for the wrong reasons. <laughs> They become Christians so that God will help sort out their marriage, so that God will, 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 will uh, um, give them uh, more friends, all sorts of things. We come to Jesus for all sorts of unsatisfactory reasons, but if it's a genuine conversion, you stay for the right reasons. And rice Christians tend to melt away when there are no more benefits, when times get hard. That's why Jesus, as we saw in that passage we looked at this morning, was so realistic. Foxes have holes, birds of the air have their nests. You come with me. You're not guaranteed anywhere to stay tonight. <laughs> um, lay down everything you've got and follow me. Give your money away to the poor and then you'll be able to follow me. Jesus made it tough for people because he knew that people will be attracted to what offers them something they can't get for themselves. So these are all reasons, it seems to me, why some Christians are awful adverts for the truth they've got. But we mustn't be quick to judge who. <laughs> It's too easy to sit in judgment on people. And you'll find some horrible web pages out there where people have put together pages which are tearing down Christians that are far greater than they are and they just feel that they're being victorious for the faith or something in assassinating the reputation of these people. Pages like, why Tim Keller was not a Christian or why John Piper will one day burn in hell and all of that kind of stuff. Uh, and people can be so judgmental about other people who claim Christianity, we've got to be very, very careful because conversion is a difficult thing to sort out. Now, I had two, two more questions I wanted to answer tonight, but I know we have a lot of furniture shifting to do and things like that. So uh, I'm going to leave these two to next week. But the two final questions I just wanted to put in tonight are these. First, are people still getting converted today? And the good news to cut to the bottom line is yes, they are. They are in big numbers all over the world. A lot depends on the culture you're in. It happens a lot less in Western Europe than almost anywhere else. I think that's because of our multi-choice society. We're used to having lots of options. And before you make a big purchase, you, you, you weigh things up, don't you? Gone are the days when my dad, as a prudential assurance sales, salesperson, could go and knock on the door of somebody he'd never met before and could sell him insurance within the first half hour. You don't do that anymore. You don't make big purchases on impulse on the doorstep. You weigh it up, you look at the reviews online, uh, you, you look at all of the different product lines you can buy from Amazon, and then choose the wrong one anyway. But having that idea that you can, you can make up your mind in your own way, that's big, and you can take your time about it. And so we're not seeing people deciding for Christ in great numbers, as they used to a few years ago, and it's individual decisions here and there. Around the world, however, it's a different picture. And the church is still growing at a faster rate 
than it ever has done before. We'll see more about that next week anyhow. The second one is, what other explanations might there be? When, for instance, the Apostle Paul became a Christian, was he having a psychotic episode? Was it uh, part of a, 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 a sunstroke, seizure kind of moment? He was, was he uh, actually an epileptic? And is that reflected by some of the other things he says about himself? Well, that doesn't seem to fit with the facts. But lots of people have come up with those theories. Can you say that a conversion is something else? I believe you can't. Because however many natural human factors are involved in it, God works through those human factors. He's a God of creation as well as a God of salvation. And he will lead you to himself in the way that suits your personality, your motivations, your society, your background at just the right time. So we'll get on to that uh, next week. We'll have a look at the, the three uh, things that I would say to somebody who comes up with that sort of knocking uh, comment about Christians and conversion. And we'll have a look at some of the Bible passages that back it up as well. For tonight, I think that's probably enough for us to go and think about, and Colin's going to come back, I think, with this, this last hymn about who we believe. There we are.